If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we've decided to step away for several weeks from our series on 1 Thessalonians. Last week, we began a sermon series titled, What Matters? in an effort to remind ourselves of the fundamental things, uh, that we would never depart from those basic principles and priorities of church life. Last Sunday, Pastor Shane preached a message from Galatians 1 called Gospel Matters, which was uh, really a fitting start to this preaching emphasis. We looked once again at the need for the church to confront worldliness and the threat of secularism and pragmatism rather than accommodate worldliness, to remind ourselves how difficult it will be as believers to be faithful to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. Also to reinforce our commitment as believers to the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Unfortunately, today, the centrality of Christ and the cross is being replaced by really a preoccupation with ourselves, our own happiness, our, our own problems, our rights, our self-worth. Christianity, for many, has been reduced, as Richard Niebuhr stated, to, quote, a God without wrath bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. This is our situation, and yet we learn time and time again that there is nothing new under the sun. In fact, the Apostle Paul faced similar challenges in ministry, but rather than watering down the message or or getting away from from biblical truth, Paul just continued to preach the gospel. He continued to be faithful in preaching Jesus, proclaiming the good news for which he was not ashamed, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel matters. We need to believe it. We need to, to preach it. We need to guard it. Uh, to be faithful to it as individuals and as a congregation. And there are other things that matter. Uh, This morning we want to consider the issue of spiritual leadership in the church because leadership matters. Most of us understand the vital importance of leadership and we understand the reality that the church of Jesus Christ does not progress beyond the spiritual progress of its leaders, which is why the New Testament has so much to say about the nature of leadership within the church. The New Testament's very clear in its, its description of, of, the, of the role of leadership, the function of leadership in the local church. It describes the authority which attaches itself to leadership, which is really uh, biblically a derived authority, from the risen Christ, really mediated through the Scriptures. And it describes for us the characteristics even which are to be represented in the lives of those entrusted with the responsibility of leadership. 
Now, when, when the Apostle Paul wrote Titus uh, to Titus, whom he left behind on the, the Mediterranean island of Crete, there was this challenge that the church faced. And that challenge was that it was in the midst of a very immoral culture. In fact, Paul makes a fairly unflattering reference from one of the Cretans' own poets. You'll see it down in verse 12 of chapter 1, speaking of the rampant immorality of the Cretans. The citizens of Crete were apparently not held in particularly high esteem for their moral standards. And Paul is concerned that the moral standards of Cretans in general may be having a negative impact upon the Christians who lived alongside of them. And so what we find is that from the very beginning, Paul was concerned to promote godliness in the lives of these believers and in their local churches. That is to say that he wanted these Christians in these various churches, in these various cities on this little island of Crete to adorn, he uses this phrase, to adorn the gospel of God or to, in a sense, make the gospel attractive. To adorn the gospel of God, their Savior, with the way that they lived that they wouldn't simply claim to be Christians, but that they would live as followers of Christ in the midst of a godless environment. Now, if your task as a minister was to speak to a younger minister who was pastoring churches filled with people that you had initially evangelized, what would be some of the things that you would say to that young minister in order to cultivate godliness in those recent Christian converts. And my guess is that you wouldn't likely say the first thing that Paul says in this particular passage. The very first thing that Paul says to Titus after we get beyond the greeting in verses 1 to 4 is simply this, the instruction to appoint elders. That was Paul's frontline strategy for promoting godliness in these local congregations filled with young Christian believers. Appoint elders. That was his strategy. To address the need for spiritual leadership in the local church. Now the reasons for that become clear in the rest of the chapter and we'll point some of them out, but first let me just read all 16 verses of chapter 1 for us. This is from the ESV translation. This is God's Word. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior." 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled." They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So, leadership matters. Uh, The need for elders in every New Testament church is a critical issue, and that is what this chapter is about. Question is why? What are they there for? What are the elders there for? And what do they do? And why would the Apostle Paul say right away, without even pausing to thank God as he so often did in his other epistles, why would he say right away, Titus, appoint elders? Address this issue of spiritual leadership. And I think there are at least three reasons, three reasons why the church needs elders and why spiritual leadership in the church must be a priority. And, and, and let me just give them to you, and then we'll, we'll unpack them as we go. But number one, elders are for discipleship. Number two, elders are, are for an example. And number three, elders are for doctrine. They are for discipleship, they are for an example, and they are for doctrine. And Paul intends to build up to see these local congregations grow in grace through discipleship, through the good example of those elders who were giving them direction, and through sound doctrine that those elders foster in the local congregation. So it really makes, it makes complete sense. That if God's people are going to adorn the gospel of God, their Savior, in all things, then they need godly elders, those who will, by their example and their teaching, show them what it means to live a life in which we glorify and enjoy God. 
And that's why Paul doesn't waste any time, but dives right into the business of this letter because he is concerned for these Cretan Christians to grow in grace, to be discipled, to become mature in the faith, to resist the worldliness and the dissipation and the immorality of the culture around them, to be distinct, to be, as scriptures say, to be in the world but not of it. And so the very first thing that he says to Titus is, Titus, you and I evangelize these Men, these women, some older, younger, he'll actually get into that into chapter 2. These men, women, and children, we evangelized them. We went around from city to city preaching the gospel. Many people came to faith in Jesus Christ, but now they need to be discipled. They need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to every city where there is a church and appoint elders. That's interesting. Why, why, does, why does Paul do that? What, what are these elders for? As I said, they are for discipleship as an example and doctrine, and you see that in this passage. So let's consider them one at a time. Why does the church, every church, need elders? Why does the church need men who are called, gifted, and qualified to lead the flock? Why, why does spiritual leadership in the local church matter? What are elders for? First of all, elders are for discipleship. Look again there at verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul is, say, Paul is saying to, to Titus, he says, now go, now go back to each of those cities in Crete where we went and preached and gathered con- a congregation and make sure that elders are appointed or ordained in each of those churches, in each of those cities, because elders are necessary for the display of God's glory in the church. In other words, Paul sees them as necessary for the spiritual well-being of the church. They're there for the welfare of the church. Paul had evangelized. People had repented and believed the gospel, gospel message. They had trusted in Christ, but there was, in a sense you might say, there was no discipleship structure, which is why believers gathered and assembled together because the local church was intended to be that locus, that, that place, the, the context for Christian discipleship. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to His disciples, He wasn't interested in His disciples going out and making Lone Ranger Christians. He wanted them to be involved in local communities where they would be mutually accountable where they would sharpen iron with iron, where they would stir up one another to love and good deeds, where they would hear the Word of God proclaimed, where they would live out that Word, and where they would show practical expressions of love to one another. And so the local church was Jesus' design for the place for discipleship. 
And Paul understood this because as he tells Titus to appoint elders, the obvious reason for this in the context of a church surrounded by an immoral culture is that this is going to be the way that discipleship is structured and fostered in the life of these local congregations. That is to say, Christian discipleship happens in the local church, and it involves the careful ministry not only of, or not, you would say, not simply of a pastor, not simply one elder or one shepherd, but elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds. And this is the pattern for missions as well as for church government that emerges from the pages of the New Testament. The pattern that unfolds in the book of Acts, for example, is one where the apostles proclaimed the gospel, they proclaimed the the good news, people came to faith in Christ and congregated in fellowships of God's people, devoting devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the apostles, in turn, returned to these fellowships to ensure that everything would be done decently and in order. And recognizing the vital importance of leadership, they appointed elders in each of the places. You can find this from, from uh, even a very, a very uh, cursory reading of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, you'll find it. By the time you get to Acts chapter 20... Paul is taking leave of the elders who had been appointed at Ephesus. And in that structure of leadership, which we have found and which we have reiterated here in our church time and time again over the years, we discover that some are to be responsible for the leadership of others, while all are to be responsible to the leadership of Christ through His Word. We cannot say that strong enough and often enough. That while a man may be responsible for the leadership of his home and to exercise oversight in the church, he, along with those who submit to him according to God's ordinance, are responsible to the leadership of Christ mediated through the Bible. That means that when a man is called by God and appointed to leadership in the local church, as necessary as it is for him to fulfill that role with wisdom and grace and boldness, he does so with the awareness that along with every other member of the church, he is called to submit to the leadership of Christ as it is clearly provided through the pages of Scripture. And that is why... Through the preaching of God's Word, the church is led. And that is why the preaching of the Word is so central to the gathering of God's people. And that is why even in the preaching event itself, that the Word of God is central. Because even in our day, we see that. that Even in the preaching, the Word of God has been set aside. But God has chosen by the word, by that means, to instruct his children. 
He has chosen by the preaching of the word to feed and protect his flock. He has ordained that by that means or those means that his family be fostered in fellowship and grow in grace and faith be engendered in those who may be unbelievers. So this is the pattern that we find in the book of Acts. The apostles and their associates went everywhere preaching, proclaiming Christ, and as God saved people, these believers were organized into local assemblies where they could grow and serve and pray together and be shepherded by a plurality of godly elders. And here in Titus, the pattern is is the same. Every city where there was a gathering of Christians who had responded to Paul's preaching, they were to have elders, plural, not just one shepherd, but a plurality of godly leaders living and ministering in their midst, promoting the discipleship of Christians. And Paul is just emphasizing again the wisdom of God's way of discipleship, that he has appointed shepherds over his flock. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that one of the ways that Jesus manifests his rule over the church is is when he gives his church officers, pastors, teachers, shepherds. It's one of the ways that God manifests his reign and rule and his care for the church. And Paul is simply saying to Titus, Titus, here is the one thing, here is the first thing, the first thing you must do. You want to promote godliness in these churches? You want to grow people in grace? You want to see followers of Christ mature in the faith? You want people to be discipled? Then appoint elders. Because elders are for discipleship. They are for discipleship. Well, not only that, but elders are also for an example. They're also for an example, which becomes clear in verses 6 through verse 8. Again, these were Christians that were tempted to be like the world around them. They were tempted to engage in all the the kinds of common vices in their own culture, and you'll see some of those vices listed in verse 12. Again, lying and evil and debauchery and laziness, all those things were common in the Cretan culture of various types of dissipation as well. So, so what was Titus to do? Paul says, appoint elders, and then, and then he makes the point that in the exercise of leadership, the consideration of character is of vital importance. The consideration of character is of vital importance. That is to say, these men are to be a certain kind and quality of men. It's not that the qualities are different than the qualities that are to be discovered and developed among those in the congregation as a whole, because they're not different. But it is that those who would aspire to the position of leadership in the church must clearly be seen 
to be marked by these qualities or characteristics to which every godly Christian will aspire. In fact, the New Testament places as great a stress upon character as qualification for spiritual leadership as upon giftedness. You might even be able, you, you could even demonstrate that the New Testament places a greater stress on character than on gifting, more stress on godly living than on a man's gifts or abilities. Therefore, the most important contribution that elders make to any company of God's people is the contribution that is made on the basis of their personal godliness. Which is why these verses are a tough mirror into which we are called to look. Because of what we have already stated that the church does not progress beyond the level of its leadership. As are, you might say this, as are the elders, so are the people. If you have godly elders, you will have godly people. If you have evangelizing elders, you will have evangelizing people. If you have hospitable elders, you will have hospitable people. If you have kind and patient elders, you will have kind and patient people. Which is what makes it so staggering and so painful at any point in ministry to read this. Because the character that is called for here is the kind of character which is to be maintained throughout his entire life in ministry. It's not something that comes and goes or that shows up in great bursts and then fades away. This is something that must be present and continue to be present in an elder's life. There are plenty of men who are gifted at speaking and presenting but who violate the characteristics that are demanded for leadership in the church. Now, we're not saying that Christian leaders are perfect and Christian leaders are not called to pretend that they are perfect. But we are called to an unequal privilege and peculiar responsibility in relationship to these things. When a Christian falls into sin... He or she hurts other people. But when a Christian leader falls into sin, he hurts many people. And that is why God gives us these instructions. Now, what are the elders to be like? Well, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that these men are to have managerial experience. He doesn't say that they're to have a knack for influencing others. He doesn't say that they're to, to have a particular education or an ability to be creative. What he does say is that they are to be, and you'll notice there, above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So they are to be an example. In this case, 
in verse 6, they are to be examples in the home. Examples in the home. Not that they have to be married or uh, not that they have to have at least two kids because some would take that, sort of interpret it that way that because it mentions the man that he is married and that he has children, plural, that he must have, he must have a wife and at least two kids. I don't believe that's the emphasis. I think he's simply taking a very, what is the more common situation, right? It's common in our culture. It would have been co- common in the culture there in Crete, but he's just t- taking that, that most common scenario and saying, listen, if a man is married and if he has children, he is to be fostering godliness in the home. Because you'll remember, these elders are here for the purpose of fostering godliness in the church. And Paul is saying, if these elders are going to do a good job of fostering godliness in the church, the best way to see that they will be able to foster godliness in the church is to look at how they foster godliness in the home. And so he goes right to the marital relationship and to the parenting responsibility of these men. First, he says, an elder must be a faithful husband. The husband of one wife. It's just simply it's a phrase, a, a one-woman man, or a one-woman, I might say, husband. In other words, he is to be characterized by marital and sexual fidelity. He is to be marked by purity in relationship to his home life. Secondly, he says an elder must be a good father whose children are well behaved. A good father whose children are well behaved. The emphasis here isn't on the children's standing before God. It's really an emphasis on the children's conduct or their behavior and their relationship to their father. And the greater burden, I think, actually of this, because this isn't, again, this is a, these are the quali- his qualifications, right? I mean, these are things, if you think about it, that should be under his control. I mean, all these vir- virtues that we're going to see in just a minute, those would certainly be areas that he could himself uh, work on. But the burden here, I think the greater burden rests on the father who is responsible not to provoke his children or exasperate them and cause them to lose heart because of his own hypocrisy or neglect in the home. Because of his own pride or his own harshness or laziness or leniency. So I'm saying when you read that, it's, it's easy to turn all the attention to the kids and put the, the weight of that on the, on the children. I'm saying, actually, I think the weight of it is on the father and his responsibility to be loving and to instruct and to be balanced and fair and equitable and to discipline his children, all those things the Scriptures call us to do and to be as fathers. Again, this makes total sense. If God wants homes in the congregation to be characterized by godliness and not by dissipation, it makes sense that the elders' homes should be characterized by faithfulness and obedience and not by dissipation and vice and drunkenness. And so God says here, those elders who are to promote godliness in the congregation, they should be promoting godliness in their own homes. 
Furthermore, if you look at verses 7 and 8, he goes on to speak about the example of their personal character. The example of their personal character. Elders, by their own character, are to foster godliness in the church. And so a list of five vices and six virtues are mentioned. In verse 7, Paul mentions five vices that are not to be gripping the life of the elder. And then there is a list of six virtues that are to be present in the life of the elder, and those are listed in in verse 8. This elder, notice again, is above reproach as God's steward. That's the second time that that phrase has been used, and so it's, you know, we need to think about that for a moment. What, what in the world does it mean to be above reproach? Well, again, it certainly doesn't mean that an elder is to be sinlessly perfected, or there would be no elders. So what does it mean? So what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, it means to not be open to a justified attack or criticism in terms of the Christian life, and particularly in these areas that Paul lists in these verses. Or you may say it this way, it means that there is no glaring inconsistency in his life. No glaring inconsistency in his life. Or to be more specific, it means that no one within the church or outside the church is able to point to an open, flagrant violation that is an endemic part of the man's character that is consistently there about which he's unrepentant or from which he refuses to move and he believes that he can continue on his way and still fulfill the role of eldership. John Trapp is a 17th century Anglican commentator. He wrote this, I think, this helpful word uh, in relation to this phrase uh, above reproach. He says, quote, Every faithful pastor must be such as against whom no just exception can be laid, no gross fault objected. Involuntary failings and unavoidable infirmities have a pardon, of course, both with God and all good men. And we must be careful to make these distinctions, to distinguish between gross faults, justifiable glaring exceptions, and involuntary failings and unavoidable infirmities. We have to be able to make those distinctions. So an elder or overseer or pastor is to be a man who has not been gripped and controlled by these various sins of self. Again, look at verse 7. He's not been gripped and controlled by a pride that demands his own way, nor anger, nor by the desire for drink or really anything that would impair his judgment or dull his senses. He has not been gripped and controlled by a desire for dominance or the propensity to quarrel. He's not been gripped and controlled by greed or covetousness. And he is above reproach in these positive virtues. 
Notice what he says next. He is hospitable. Literally, he's loving strangers, opening up his life and home to those he doesn't know very well. We're not talking about opening up your home to those you know well or to family. We're talking about opening up your home and showing that, that hospitality and love for those that you don't know well. He is one who approves goodness and shows kindness. He is sensible and sound-minded, thoughtful, demonstrating the kind of sobriety that you would expect to find in the cockpit of a plane, especially when things begin to go wrong. A steady hand, a sound mind, someone that can think clearly about the issues. They can exercise discernment. He is also one that is equitable. He is, he is one that is honest and upright and, and a fair man, you might say, in his dealings. He is set apart and committed to God in his word. And he is a devout man and a man who evidences some degree of self-mastery. In other words, when it comes to his own desires, when it comes to his own uh, wishes, his own wants, even his, his fleshly appetites, there's a, a pattern of being able to master those things and to exercise self-control. And notice, these things can be seen and heard, which means that he must not be in the teaching role, incomprehensible on Sunday, but invisible and inaccessible during the week. And when you get that elder teaching you in whatever context and you meet him in the street or you find yourself in his home, you will find that his character commends his message and does not deny it. So Paul's instruction here is plain. An elder must not be controlled by alcohol or money or or one that stirs up sinful controversy or division And if you go to his house, you will find that he manages his household well. Not that his wife and his children are perfect. In a sense, he's just an ordinary guy with an extraordinary calling and given an extraordinary task. But we have every right to anticipate that he will be able to exercise oversight over the prerogative of his own family And if he can do it there, then he can do it in the church. In the home, sober, sensible, pure, nurturing his children in the faith, encouraging them in belief, bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord. Okay, if if you see those things in the home, Paul is simply saying, then you can anticipate him doing the same thing over here. Right? If he's doing it in his private life and if he's doing it in his home, then he's likely to do those very same things in the church and in those areas sometimes of public ministry. And if they know him at the grocery store and if they know him at the ballpark and if they know him at the barber shop and at the bank, it ought to be no surprise to them that he is an elder in your church. So those, those, those places where those elders, those men go, and the interactions they have throughout the week, when, when those individuals find out, <laughs> they say, oh, I know him. They say, oh, well, he's an elder in my church. Their mouth should not hit the floor. <laughs> I can't believe that guy is a leader in your church. 
right? That's not what they should be thinking. What they should be, and again, it's not because they understand the doctrine of eldership, right? I mean, we're talking about, in many cases, just unbelievers, right? It's not that they understand eldership. It's not that they understand all these things that Paul is saying. It's just in their minds, they would say of that man, he's a kind man. He's an honest man. He is a respectful man. So these are the virtues or the characteristics of one who is a shepherd. You see, God is giving this local congregation and every local church real-life examples of His truth lived out in the elders' lives in order to encourage and move us as a congregation to grow in grace. Now, this reality does two things for us, at least. First, it presses us to pray for our elders. Amen? Pray for our elders. And you've got to know how every elder feels when you read a passage like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. It's one of the most humbling things in the world to be an elder in a congregation when these passages are read out loud. Nothing will shrink you more quickly than having this passage read out in front of people who know you. It's a very humbling thing. And that presses us to pray for them to pray that they would long to emulate these standards and that they would really emulate them to every possible degree in the life of their homes and in their own personal character. But it also reminds us that the character qualities that Paul speaks of as being required in elders and the kind of family life that Paul says is required for elders is in fact what he is aiming for with every person in the congregation. The reason that these are required of the elders is because this is what Paul wants to see the whole congregation looking like. So before you start to point the finger, remember, Paul wants to see this in your home. Paul wants to see you dealing with those vices and developing those virtues in your own personal life. Do you claim to be a disciple of Jesus? How does the value of that profession of faith show on Friday nights when you're away from the church? When you're in school or alone with friends, what is the value of that profession when you're out of town on a business trip or when you're posting on Instagram? Listen, Paul, and it's not just Paul, the Lord is deeply concerned that our profession is adorned by our life. And he's so concerned that he's willing to say that elders can forfeit the privilege of serving as elders if that reality is not reflected in their families or in their personal character. And yet, it is Paul's desire that the families, every family in the congregation will represent these kinds of standards in an immoral and godless culture. So why does the church need elders? Because elders are for discipleship. 
elders are for an example. And then lastly, elders are for doctrine. Notice verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there it is. Elders are for doctrine. That is to say they are for conveying the truth and confronting error. Elders are to be orthodox. They are to be sound teachers, clarifying and confirming doctrine, equipping others for ministry, shepherding them towards Christ. This elder is zealous for the truth. He doesn't doesn't simply assent to the truth, but his heart is wrapped up in the truth. He holds fast to the faithful word of biblical teaching, and he teaches in accordance with that word. He's able to exhort in sound doctrine and incline faithful Christians to believe and obey the Lord's teaching. And that's not all. It's this sort of other side of, of what he does. He's, he is also able to refute those who contradict the gospel. That is to say, he's able to defend the faith. Or to summarize, he embraces the word, he ex- expounds the word, he encourages spiritual health through the teaching of sound doctrine, and he exposes spiritual threats. By discerning error and recognizing it for what it really is, it's, it's, it's diseased teachings, and then by convicting or reproving those who promote them. This is what an elder must do. He must promote truth and ward off error. And both of these functions, exhorting and refuting, are continuing functions. They can never be laid aside. The minister must always be doing these things. John Calvin talked about the need for elders or pastors to have two voices. One, to gather the sheep and feed the flock with biblical instruction, the other to drive away the wolves and thieves with words of sharp rebuke and warning. And so he must be able to teach, see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and to do it, according to 2 Timothy 2.24, with gentleness and respect. And he must know that the leadership of the elders is to be a leadership by the crook of the Word of God. That is the influence here. That is the authority. It is not the power of personality. It's not ultimately the influence of of giftedness. It is the power of the Word. And we shepherd the people with the instruction of God's Word. So when somebody comes and says that they're wondering about God's will in a particular situation, we say to them, let's see what the Bible has said about that. And when, and when they come and they say that they're out of sorts with another person in the church and, and they're wondering about reconciliation, the elder says, let's see what the Word says. Because the only thing we have to say is what is in the book. It's all we have to say. Because the only crook that the great shepherd has provided for the under-shepherds is the crook of his word. Now, notice the big picture here when you pull back. Paul says, Elders want to see people grow and mature and not to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And elders demonstrate fidelity 
and spiritual leadership in their family and in their character. So they're for an example. And elders are zealous. They're devoted to sound doctrine. They're for discipleship. They're for an example. They're for doctrine. They love people, and so they want to see people grow. They, they're hospitable, and so they're kind to people. They display virtue. They love what is good, and what is good is displayed in the way that they live, and they love the truth. Or you could say it this way. They love people, they love virtue, and they love truth. And Paul says, Titus, by placing godly shepherds, leaders like this in the congregation, it is my desire to see the whole congregation cultivated in Christian growth and a love for one another, an expression of Christian morality, Christ-likeness, and in a love for the truth of God's Word. That's what elders are for. And if that's what elders are for, we have a lot to pray about. We have a lot to pray about. To pray for our elders to be what God has called them to be. To realize how vital they are to the health of our spiritual experience in this local body, in this local congregation. This congregation will not rise above the spiritual attainments of the elders of this church. And that is a sobering thought. But it is within the very designs of Christ's own appointment of shepherds over his church to serve as his under shepherds, his caretakers, while he is away, to foster growth in grace in his people. May God continue to raise up men in our own congregation with these spiritual qualifications and a shepherd's heart. And may he continue to help those who already are elders in our church to live this particular truth and calling. And may the Lord grow all of us in grace. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom in the way that you have composed and and structured the church. Thank you for the privilege, Lord. I personally thank you for the privilege of serving this body and serving with my fellow elders. May we continue to feel the awesome responsibility of one day being called to account before the bar of heaven for every word spoken, every lesson taught, every sermon preached, every decision made, every form of counsel given. Thank you for this church this flock, this family, for their submissive heart, for their prayerfulness, for their genuine interest, for their honest challenges. Thank you for the wonder of the body of Christ. We are not what we were nor what we will be, but we are making progress. And we thank you that we are being renewed day by day into the image of your Son. Jesus Christ. And now to unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.